Welcome to Good Heavens, a podcast about how the heavens declare the glory of God. The Apostle Paul tells us that, quote, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. End quote. If the universe is not the creation of the God of the Bible, something is. And when you read popular scientific accounts of how the universe came to be, Oftentimes, the cause of the universe is described by a myriad of impersonal forces, some sort of combination of matter and energy that came together by chance, no one is really sure. Some scientists and skeptical philosophers will claim that the universe just is, a brute fact that requires no explanation. Others claim wondering why the universe exists is the wrong sort of question to ask. But then one wonders what kinds of questions does empty space prefer? There is much philosophy and speculation within the realm of cosmology and cosmogony, the study of the origin of the cosmos, a lot of untestable assumptions that might bear out in an equation or two. But unlike collecting rock samples from the moon or analyzing the atmospheres of, say, Venus and Jupiter, one cannot perform tests on the origin of the universe. The non-theistic explanations of the universe often end up sounding exactly as some of God's invisible attributes. If not God, whatever caused the universe to come into being had to be outside the universe, outside of time itself as we know it, extremely powerful, and perhaps either infinite or eternal. In part two of our conversation with Christian and astrophysicist Dr. Leslie Wickman, we talk a bit about the God of the gaps arguments and what constitutes causality in a universe without God. As we start part two, I ask Leslie to comment about causality in contemporary cosmology. It seems that when we go, uh, when science goes beyond uh, the beginning, I've seen a lot of models, uh, Sean Carroll or or you name it, or, or Lawrence Krauss, or you have the quantum idea of uh, this uh, this froth, that uh, this uncaused froth. Like, right. like how does this uh, quantum foam, how do particles, how can particles have no cause when you have this stuff that you just don't want to explain why it's there? You just can't, <laughs> can't just say it pops into existence. Like Lawrence Krauss, I think he had said something about the electron jumping down a, a level and it just, it just does and then it just emits a photon and it's it's uncaused and you know like 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 we're just trying to a priori get rid of causality but you have these things that, that you just you just don't want to explain you just they're just there and yeah. so what's what's characteristic it seems leslie it seems like when when physicists who are not christians want to go beyond uh whether to deny causality or to have some entity uh, that explains causality, it tends to be something unseen, something quite powerful, 
and, and something beyond the realm of uh, empirical testability or falsifiability. And so we seem to be able to shake hands with our secular physicist friends who want to say that the entity beyond our universe that caused our universe was powerful, big, unseen, and, and wow, we sound like theologians now, right? Exactly, exactly. That exactly. Quant, quantum foam is the uncaused cause. You know, if uh, Thomas Aquinas were still around, the, the quantum foam would be the uncaused, uh, yeah, the, yeah. the, the, the prime, Aristotle's the prime necessary. mover, the necessary yeah, exactly. being. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it seems like it seems like they're attributing Romans one. You'd mentioned earlier the Apostle Paul attributing God's invisible attributes to two things yeah. rather than God. You, yeah. you, I see that a lot. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's it's quite interesting because I think it's it's kind of ironic, honestly, from my standpoint, um, that you know over the years there have been many um, critics of Christianity uh, that have have said, "Oh, you know, you guys, you just use you constantly using this God of the gaps argument." Well, saying basically, "Oh, well, we can't explain that, so we just say God did a miracle," you know, and. I, in my position, I'm like, no, we embrace science. If science is used properly, it's a tool that we can use to discover God's works. And, and when we, you know, come into it without an agenda to say, okay, we're trying to, you know, prove a point here or, or, you know, get rid of some of the mystery or whatever, we're just trying to look at the evidence and, and, figure out where that leads us and what is the best explanation for the current body of evidence that we have. And, and so, you know, I, I think pe- people do have to be careful not to sound like they're coming across as somebody who's using a God of the gaps type of argument. Well, we just don't understand it, but you know, God did a miracle, but you, you can look at the flip side of that where a secular uh, materialistic uh, scientists might be saying, oh, well, we're just going to say that this is, you know, some sort of a material cause. We don't really understand it, but that's where everything came from. I mean, that's exactly the counter argument yeah. to this kind of idea of God of the gaps. It's like, right. well, we're just going to say that, you know, this, this law exists or this behavior is what caused all these things. Yeah. It's like, where and, did those come from? Why is there order? And I think the, the secularists, counter uh, accusation of God of the gaps to theists. Uh, there's a couple of problems that I see with it philosophically. One, to that it rules out, it, it just a priori without explanation rules out personal causality as a legitimate explanation for something. In other words, you can say scientifically how you make coffee. You boil water, you crush beans, you grow the beans. You could talk about the biology of beans. You could talk about how coffee is made and percolated. You could talk about espresso machines. Whatever you want to do, you could be real technical about coffee. But but that that all of those technical explanations don't rule out the barista, right? Right. That that the, sure. the barista is is a legitimate uh, cause of the coffee being on your table now. It's not going to saying it's the barista isn't going to tell you how the espresso machine works, but it's a legitimate explanation nonetheless. And so it seems to be that kind of atheistic objection seems to be predicated upon the idea that we just going to rule out personal agency, period, because it's unscientific. But yet what you just pointed out, the materialism of the gaps is also unscientific because you can't verify that either. I mean, empirically speaking, you're you're just a priori assuming matter and energy 
and some kind of combination of that that just rules out baristas altogether. Right. Yeah. Or never mind the customer that ordered the coffee. Right. Never mind why that's the yeah the, that whole thing of the agency there is is, <laughs> is 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 all over the place, right? Exactly. And so exactly. When, when you look at the details, and this is what I love, I I, um, I interviewed Stephen C. Meyer uh, last year, and uh, digging into my research, I came across this wonderful fact that. Uh, uh, James Clerk Maxwell, uh, when when he had the Cavendish Laboratory constructed, he had big windows because he was doing experiments with light. And over the door of the original laboratory, he has inscribed Psalm 111.2, Great are the works of the Lord, and they are uh, studied by all who delight in them. And uh, when they remodeled the Cavendish, and there's like a newer Cavendish Laboratory, they decided to keep that over the door of the new lab. But But that, as you say in your book, you say that studying creation is a kind of worship. Now, I know somebody like Lawrence Krauss or, or Sean Carroll isn't going to say that, but, uh, but for Christians, that, uh, and I've talked to many scientists, that, that, that studying creation is like reading scripture. It is an act of devotion and worship, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like I said, again, for me, um, coming from my background, I went to secular schools all the way from first grade through, uh, well, through grad school, grade school, grade school through grad school. And, um, you know, heard many times over and over that, you know, what we are going to be talking about in science class has absolutely nothing to do with your faith. And so it was always a little bit of a scary topic, you know, in my, you know, especially in my K through 12 years, um, it was it was a little bit scary to talk about science and how it did or didn't fit with my faith, um, you know, because I, it had kind of really been, uh, you know, pushed on me that the two just were so incompatible that you couldn't possibly find any any uh, reconciliation. And to where I am today, where it's like, oh my gosh, bring on the science! I I you know I'm not. <laughs> there's nothing that science could discover that would hurt my faith. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I embrace science. And so I guess what I, what I'm getting at here is in terms of the kind of uh, God of the gaps type of arguments, um, you know, steering clear of those and, and just saying, you know what? Yeah, we don't understand this, but you know, I trust the scientific method uh, to work to figure this out. But as a Christian, I'm using the scientific method because of my curiosity about the created order yeah. that God made. You know, right. and I want to I want to think God's thoughts after him. I want to see what he's done. It is the the glory of God to um, conceal a matter and the glory of kings to search it out. It's the glory of God to do these amazing things that are not um, obvious at face value, but the glory of us as his created beings with intelligence and rational minds to figure it out after him, you Mm. know, and I just love that. I mean, it's like, you know, God's created and he wants us to look into his creation and figure out how he did it and marvel even more 
at who who this right. amazing creator God is yeah. and had the ingenuity to put these things together. And, you know, I mean, another one that I, I love to talk about is the strong nuclear force. And the fact that the strong nuclear force is the strongest force that we know of, but unlike gravity or the electromagnetic forces, it doesn't just gradually taper off with distance. It goes from being the strongest force that we know of to absolutely zero Mm. after it spans the average uh, diameter of the nucleus of an atom. But you're, and so you're saying that after outside of the proton neutron, uh, being connected together, however many of them there are, it stops. There's no exactly. s- strong nuclear force beyond that. Yeah, and if you if you think about the ramifications of that, you know, if the strong if the strong nuclear force were weaker or if it didn't exist at all, um, we couldn't have any molecules or atoms uh, more complex than hydrogen with one proton. Because as soon as you add another proton, you've got that electromagnetic repulsion between the protons. So you need the strong nuclear force to hold atoms together that are more complex than hydrogen. Mm -hmm. But if that strong nuclear force didn't immediately go to zero after it spans the the distance of a a non-radioactive nucleus of an atom and that's another topic we could get into but um if it if it didn't have a limit on it then you can imagine all the protons in the universe being stuck together in one gigantic blob and you can't really build a universe out of that either and 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 also you look at that and it like i said is only good to this very finite distance which is also why when you get these really big nuclei and these atoms with higher atomic numbers, they're radioactive. They're not stable. And so they're going to fall apart, right? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's just amazing, though, how truly. all of this fits together to build a life-friendly universe. You know? Truly, truly. Yeah, we have uh, in our Story of the Cosmos book, we have uh, Luke Barnes. Primarily came onto the scene because of his uh, articulation of fine-tuning. And uh, so he's in our book, but he outlines a chapter uh, about fine-tuning, and he likens the fine-tuning. What you're saying reminded me of of what he said about how Legos fit together so nicely. Mm. Yeah. But imagine, he says, Legos assembling themselves. Right. And then you start to have some kind of concept that this is the most wonderful toy on the planet, that Legos assemble themselves, and then they come alive. So it's right. not it's not just a nuclear assemblage, it's nuclear right. assemblage that becomes uh, living beings. But um, it's it, it, it is truly fascinating, and I think you know we're talking about okay. So where are, what are God's invisible attributes in, in nuclear forces here? But Proverbs twenty five two it was one of the books, one of the verses that you'd mentioned in the book, um, and it, it makes me. I've always thought of that verse, and I, I love that verse too, um, where it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. And you think about how Jesus talked to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What did he do? He spoke in Proverbs and he spoke in parables right. so that seeing they may not see and hear they may and hearing right. they may not understand or they may not hear. Right. And you're like, you know, part of you goes, well, if, if you're Jesus and you're God and you want everybody to come to salvation, why don't you just tell these people plainly what you're talking about? But he's addressing a culture who and people that thought they knew exactly what God was all about, and they put God in this box. And so God comes to them in a counterintuitive sort of way and hides things from the very people who claim to know him, which yeah. is, which is the, one of the deepest ironies, I think, in Scripture. But then it's the glory of kings— to, to, to hide, to, to seek things out. And I think this is what Lewis was doing in Narnia, at least in Lion, the Witch, mm-hmm. and the Wardrobe, where the, the children become kings 
mm-hmm. and queens yeah. and Narnia. And what are they doing throughout the whole book? They're they're looking into these things that that, right. are, go- that are going on. And then I also think that that this is Jesus Himself. That God has, as as the hymn writers say, um, veiled in flesh. The, oh, right. the Godhead veiled in flesh, that God is veiled in flesh, that He's hiding in plain sight in the in the person of His Son, um, that it is the glory of kings to seek out who this man from Nazareth was, right? So, yeah. so yeah. God hides stuff in plain sight for us to discover, including Himself. His very nature is hidden, but yet revealed in a way that is rather that that as you've been saying, takes some legwork and some homework and some digging. God sets us on this journey to, to seek, you know, and yes. to, to find things. Well, and I also think that the, the importance of free will is so tied up in all of this too, because if, if God made himself so like plain in broad daylight, you know, where you can't possibly deny the existence of God and still be considered a sane person. Um, which, you know, I mean, there's still some debate about whether that's a sane <laughs> position or not. But, yeah. um, he did that with Paul. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Exactly. You're absolutely right. And it, sometimes maybe that's what it takes. Right. But but I just in my studies and, you know, especially when you start thinking about the problem of evil and, you know, a good God and all this sort of thing. Um, I believe that free will is such an important component of uh the way god has set things up that um that you know concealing a matter is part of that allowing humans to have free will and in other words we're different than the angels the angels are not created with free will um at least not to the extent that we have it where you know we we are born to choose we are born to decide whether to follow God or not, or to go our own way. And I think that's such an important relational piece of, of what God wants to have with humans um, that, you know, that that's part of concealing things is like, look, you, you have to, you have to want to see me. You have to want to see God uh, to have a relationship and, and maybe that does take a little more work, um, but but it gives you the freedom to say that you want to go your own way. And I just think that that's, like I said, the free will piece is just such an important part of God's relationship with humanity that, you know, everywhere we look, we see, you know, evil comes from humans having uh, free will and, and free choice. Um, we live in a fallen world, and so the some of the the very laws of physics are, um, you know, designed to have things decay. You know, thermodynamics. I have always I've been a I'm an adult convert. I came to Christ, or He came to me, uh, almost thirty years ago, and I was not raised in a Christian home um, like yourself. But I have always puzzled, and I've thought about these things deeply, and I have no answer. So I'm not I'm not asking these as uh, as 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 being uh, argumentative or contentious, but simply just hey I'd love to see what you think of these things. There's sort of the paradox of uh, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the theological uh, tennis match that goes back and forth <laughs> in Christian circles about free will and and you know if you're a hard Calvinist or if you're a Arminian and all that stuff. But uh, I I have am- amusingly posed this question before and I I don't have 
an answer. I'm kind of, if you want to say, I'm kind of wishy-washy on it. I, I, I am in a Reformed Presbyterian church, but I still find the enigma of human will and God and sovereign will to be fascinatingly uh, um, hidden from my understanding. So I often point the question, I wonder, is was it God's foreordained plan for us to have free will? That's, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I, I don't, it seems like it would have to be that case. And then which case is that free will? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but the other paradox, a little bit more seriously, Leslie, and this is something I really wanted to ask you, and it, it has in relation to time, because that's a bugger of a, of a concept. Uh, when you think about it, I always like to befuddle my middle school students when I taught. I said, what, what is time? And they point mm-hmm. to the clock. I said, well, what, what is that? What's an hour? What's a minute? What's a second? What, what is time? And I know in philosophy, there are a couple of views of time where you have an A theory of time and a B theory of time where the past and the future don't really exist they're, 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 for whatever reason. Then you have a, another theory where time is God sees time all at once as though all things are still in concordance. So here's my question for you as a physicist, and it, and it may be just to help me clear my head about my analogy being really terrible. But let's say there's a giant mirror or telescope or microscope, some kind of lens, okay, that's um, – let's say 500 light years away, like something like an exoplanet that we've discovered, something 500 light years away. Now, before I go on to the analogy, I need to make clear that if there was a planet 500 light years away, it would take us traveling at the speed of light. It would take us 500 years to get there, correct? Is that, that's right. 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 Okay. Yes. Yeah. And by the way, we can't even travel at one one hundred. Yeah, you pointed that out in the book. I yeah. thought that was fascinating how you, you so wonderfully and simply described how in order to go this faster, we need to protect ourselves uh, from, from you know, because more speed, more danger, more destruction is possible, more the collisions would be more intense. And yeah, so we yeah. need more defense. But when we build up our spaceships, then we pr- prohibit ourselves from going faster because we're weighted right. down with mass. <laughs> so exactly. we have to figure out a way to make ourselves protons. I think they did that in Star Trek, but I'm not sure. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm not sure how they how the science of turning humans into protons would work but uh, right. um, well, i'd have some trouble more trouble with uh reassembly than disassembly yes right disassembly <laughs> would be pretty easy i'd imagine we can vaporize ourselves with lasers if we wanted to um but uh here's the paradox and i i can't get out of it i haven't read this anywhere i don't know if it's original maybe somebody's already thought of it and you've already heard of this in another way but let's say there's a giant mirror or lens or something that we can see that's, it would have to be huge and enormous and technically sophisticated beyond anything we have. So you have to suspend your your current idea of science in this. But we could see this thing. Hubble sees this thing or, or James Webb finds this thing. Um, and we can see a reflection of Earth in this thing. And not only can we see a reflection of Earth, we can see – so 500 years ago – well, let's just go back 2,000 years. Let's say it's 2,000 light years away. We, this thing can zoom in down – ground level to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. If we can look in this mirror, Leslie, from our vantage point, would we really be seeing history unfolding in this mirror on Earth? Well, okay, so you got to think about the fact that, first of all, the the light from Earth takes 2,000 years to get to this thing, right? Right, right. Okay, and then it takes another two thousand to get to us mm-hmm. to bounce back to us. So, right. so if we're looking at it right now, we're seeing what happened four thousand. Four thousand. Okay, ago. okay. So yeah, so the date. Well, let's. I guess the the date, the distance is is inconsequential. But would we be able to see the past going on 
in in, in our telescope if, if we if this device really yes theoretically i mean theoretically yes absolutely because i mean even if you mm. if you kind of dial it down to to a more kind of uh techno- technologically feasible distance yeah okay let's just say that um this mirror is in the vicinity of the sun okay and let's say it's just it's massive uh, so the sun is a little over eight light minutes away and you look at this, or let's say it's the other direction just to yeah, get know. out of the sun's glare. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you look in this mirror and you're essentially going to see light that was reflected 16 and a half minutes ago or something like that. So yeah, you'll see what's happening or what was happening 16 and a half minutes. And that's ago. just so strange to my brain. And I'm not saying it's. I'm not saying it because I don't believe it's true, or I, yeah. I, I just find it, you know, fascinating. Because obviously, distance. We figured out at least in our own backyard that the distances to these objects are what we've measured them to be. We don't go to the moon or land on Mars unless we know how far away it is. It's quite a golf shot when you think about it, right? right? You only have well, yeah, and even even for communications purposes yeah. with like the landers on Mars and whatnot, you have to right. Realize you're not going to get an instantaneous reaction. Yeah, yeah. The time that it takes to right. send a signal. Right. Um, but but to maybe talk a little more broadly about this issue of time. Um. So I have this kind of I sh- I should try to figure out. I'm not an artist myself, but I should probably see if I can find an artist to draw a conception of of what it is that I have in my head. Um. I. I look at the timeline that we're on here on earth Mm -hmm. as this linear one direction uh, line and, you know, time in scientific terms has been referred to as quite simply the forward flow of events. You know, Mm -hmm. all the clocks are doing are measuring that. Right. Yeah. Um, And so, so that's, that's an irreversible, as as far as we experience that timeline that we're stuck on, it's it's unstoppable, it's irreversible, just goes one direction only, right? Um, but outside of this universe, outside of this space, time, matter, and energy uh, that makes up our universe, mm-hmm. where God sits in eternity. Yeah, I, I I picture God in heaven viewing the entire timeline hmm. that we're on at once. Yeah, that's kind of how I see it myself. I'm I'm not technically minded in the philosophical arguments for A or B theories, but I, I it would make sense that the Lord would know past, present, and future, or see it in some capacity, yeah. and then be able to step down into that timeline. Um, yeah. Well, and and here's here's to me another. Uh, connecting point with with science and um, that is when we look at kind of the cutting edge uh, theories uh, in science um, including string theory Um, you know string theorists and there's a whole bunch of different permutations of what what string theory means to almost any person that you talk to Mm -hmm. but uh, the gist of it is that um, in order to get uh, the math uh, to work out right, to describe the expansion of the universe that we observe, mm-hmm. um, 
uh, it's, it's helpful to actually do the math in more dimensions. It works out better. So, so even though we only experience three physical dimensions of space uh, and one dimension of time that is, is moving in one direction only, um, string theorists uh, speculate that there may be you know, 10 or 11 uh, dimensions. And so more dimensions of physical space and possibly even more dimensions of time than what we experience here. Mm. So if you imagine this linear timeline that we live on and experience, and just imagine that instead of a line, time has two dimensions, so it becomes a plane. Mm. Okay. And if you if you imagine that, then you can see how within the physical constraints of even two dimensions of time, God can be everywhere at once. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this is, this is kind of what I, one of the things that I love about science is like, even at the cutting edges of science, you know, we've got good correspondence between what we know about God from scripture mm-hmm. and what we're learning about the universe. Mm-hmm. And another another neat thing about this idea of multidimensionality or extra dimensions is that a lot of things that would not make sense to, and you may have read the book, The uh, Flatland. It's a pretty short little book, but it's, it's really interesting. And it, the idea is that it kind of compares the, the idea of us living in three dimensions of uh, physical space to uh, entities that lived in only two dimensions. And so the two-dimensional creatures would be com- confined to a plane. Yeah. And if they interact with someone in a three-dimensional space that can poke them from a, a perpendicular direction to that <laughs> plane that they live in, yeah. it feels like, oh my gosh, something's inside of me poking. Right. What's going on, you know? And, and so things that don't make sense in three dimensions can make sense in more dimensions. And mm. so this is one of the things that I, I think about these kind of paradoxes or conundrums that we see spiritually is like, yeah. you know, um, maybe the, the coexistence of a, a perfectly loving God and evil existing in the world are not as paradoxical if you introduce these additional dimensions. Hmm. Yeah. And, and there, I think a lot of the paradoxes, and this is just, like I said, something that has come to me through the, you know, the kind of just speculating or contemplating about what are the implications of string theory and these extra dimensions of both space and time. So anyway, I just, I, I love that, you know, the more that we learn through science, the more we can um, see the compatibility between science and faith. We appreciate you listening today and hope you have been edified and encouraged. If you've enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Leslie Wickman, Do join us live on Zoom this October, where Watchman Fellowship will be featuring Dr. Wickman live on our Atheist and Christian Book Club. Leslie will be talking more about her book, God of the Big Bang, and will be open to taking questions and having further dialogue with us about issues of science and faith. 
For more information on how to join us, it is free, you can visit our book club website at atheistchristianbookclub.com. That's atheistchristianbookclub.com for how you can join us live and for free in October with Dr. Leslie Wickman. And invite a friend or two. Links will be available in the notes section of this episode for more information, including how to get a copy of Leslie's book and the article she wrote for CNN. And for more information about apologetics, cults, or our sister podcast, Apologetics Profile, and a wide variety of information on world religions, do visit our ministry's website at watchman.org. That is watchman with an A dot O-R-G. We hope you'll join us again next week for our concluding episode with Dr. Leslie Wickman. And for Good Heavens and Watchman Fellowship, I'm Daniel Ray. Soli Deo Gloria. <laughs>